0: hello and welcome to the february 17th 2021 episode of the gestalt it rundown and happy random acts of kindness day my name is tom hollingsworth the most random host of the gestalt it rundown and joining me is the act of kindness that you need after talking to me mr stephen foskett stephen welcome to the show today I hate being here, Tom. Well, hopefully you don't hate talking about great technology news because we've got a good lineup of stories this week that we're going to want to dive right into. Um, Let's start off with one of the topics that we've been discussing quite a bit here on the rundown over the past few years. Well, not necessarily years, but it felt like years. And that would be the NVIDIA acquisition of ARM. Now, you know that we have some strong opinions on this, but guess who else does? Qualcomm. Uh, Last week, they filed a complaint quietly with the FCC stating that they have problems with the proposed $40 billion acquisition. What's their problem, you might ask? Well, it turns out they're worried that NVIDIA will start restricting who's allowed to license the ARM architecture. Did you know that ARM currently licenses that architecture to over 500 different companies? That doesn't sound like a bad thing, except if NVIDIA starts looking at themselves as a competitor to companies like Qualcomm, Intel, AMD, and so on, does that mean that they're going to start restricting the ability to license that architecture? Now, Stephen, I know that you've talked about this quite a bit recently with uh, how you think this deal is gonna shake out. Do you think Qualcomm kind of throwing their name into the hat as a company that has some significant issues with this acquisition, is that going to affect how it ends up happening?
1: Absolutely, I do. Um, let's just be clear that um, you know, among litigious companies in the chip making space, Qualcomm is um, a champ. And uh, I expect that uh, our friends in San Diego are af- absolutely going to object to this thing. Um, why wouldn't they? It seems like a, 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 a poor deal for, for the perspective of anyone who happens to be an ARM licensee who also competes with NVIDIA, which increasingly is, I should say, everyone. Because NVIDIA is uh, rapidly embiggening and um, expanding and has, you know, uh, according to a briefing that you, know, you and I got yesterday from them, is the number one networking vendor now. So um, the question is, um, <laughs> why wouldn't everyone object? Um, I think that some people have been sitting on their hands a little bit, um, expecting that the other objections of others would be sufficient. Um, some people probably aren't going to strenuously object anyway, because they're in such a dominant position. But if I was Qualcomm, absolutely, I would object to this because uh, there is absolutely a business risk. No, no stones being thrown at NVIDIA here or ARM here. It's just, it's a business risk that this uh, acquisition could interfere with their access to IP that is not just critical but central to their products. So yeah, uh, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, apparently, this was not an official, um, you know, objection. It was um, sort of one of those let's you know run it up the flagpole with the uh, you know with the government and see if we can get some more clarification on this. Uh, you know, kind of a pre-registration of objection. But I absolutely expect that if this doesn't shake the merger loose, and I don't think it will, then um, we will get official objections from Qualcomm and likely official objections from some of the other licensees as well. Yeah, and considering that there have been companies that have already
0: started kind of um, punishing may not be the right word, but they've already started restricting access to NVIDIA of their technologies because they're starting to see NVIDIA as a competitor, You would think that the company would be a little bit more sensitive to the possibilities of what this could entail. And 500 voices telling someone to not allow this merger to happen is quite a bit of feedback that the government really just can't ignore.
1: Yep. In other news, uh, water is wet. Uh, The earth is round, and if you make a claim against your cybersecurity policy, uh, your premiums are going to go up. Uh, That fact seems to be news to companies that took out uh, cyber insurance policies against ransomware and then found that their costs increased when they used it. Uh, Moody's has reported a double-digit increase across the board for all policyholders, as well as some steep increases for those that have been hit by malware infections regularly or have had significant recent losses. Tom, uh, is the insurance safety net starting to turn on these companies?
0: Yeah, I really think that this is a situation where a lot of companies just thought if they kept paying their insurance premiums and they might get hit by ransomware down the road, that it was going to pay off and they wouldn't need to invest in a whole lot of uh, architecture to you know, do things like do r- ransomware recovery or, or significant backup disaster re- recovery type operations. Well, we'll just wait for our check and then we'll rebuild. And the insurance companies, well, let's be fair. Insurance companies have one goal in life and that's to not pay out. And if you've ever tried to get a roof replaced or have your car fixed after an accident, you know that that's the case. And this is becoming a common enough occurrence that they absolutely want to start putting controls in place. I mean, when you think about it, there are a lot of things that we do in our daily lives that we specifically do because the insurance companies tell us that we're supposed to. And we've not really seen that in the space. And I think, you know, honestly, companies that have been selling insurance, I've just been hoping across the board that they can just keep taking people's money and never have to pay out. And now that that ransomware crews are really stepping up their game and starting to extort companies quite a bit, um, the insurance companies now want some kind of reasonable controls in place before they're willing to fork over the handfuls of cash that it's going to take. Because you know, when when a car gets wrecked, there's an upper limit. You know, you total the car, you're out you know, 10s of 1000s of dollars. But when there's a ransomware breach and potential class action lawsuits and a whole bunch of other things, that number for the insurance policy payout can get very big, very fast. And I don't think the insurance companies like that idea. So if you're thinking that cybersecurity ransomware insurance is going to be your big ticket to not having to buy a data loss prevention system or have reasonable controls in place to prevent ransomware from encrypting your entire infrastructure, it may be time to go back to the drawing board and work up that 2021 budget a little bit differently, because I promise you, you're going to be paying through the nose before you know it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is is the nature of insurance. Insurance is probably one of the most... Um, non-subjective things that we encounter in our lives. Um, it is 100% controlled by the mathematics of uh, you know, actuarials and uh, finance. And frankly, insurance is a very good business because it is a very good business. Um, you, know, you, talk to, you, know, you look at uh, some of the leading financial companies and insurance is one of their primary uh, you know, drivers of revenue. And the reason is because it's very, very predictable. And essentially, it adapts as, uh, to the reality of the situation. So if you buy uh, auto insurance and it's fairly inexpensive, well, that's because your car doesn't get stolen a lot. Your car, you don't get in a wreck a lot. But if you start doing that, or if you buy a crazy car um, that has, uh, you know, a, a, gets stolen all the time or something, well, your, your rates are going to go up. Similarly, you know, I mean, if, if your house burns down, um, you know, insurance isn't a backstop to your house burning down. It is a financial backstop so that you can buy a new house. It doesn't mean that suddenly you can live in the insurance money. And I think that that's the situation that a lot of these companies are kind of uh, starting to realize is that uh, you know ransomware insurance was never intended to be a protection against ransomware. It was intended to be a financial backstop so that they can recover the revenue and recover from ransomware. Now that ransomware is so widespread and the uh, actuaries are starting to realize just how big of a risk this is. Um, It is inevitable that rates will go up and it, uh, you know, honestly, this is a really great thing for the IT industry because hopefully the people, the CFOs and CEOs out there will see their ransomware insurance go up and they'll say, you know what, we need to invest in this. We need to invest in products that protect us from this. We need to invest in people that can build systems that protect us from this. And we need to have an actual good protection, uh, you know, security uh, approach instead of just saying, well, we bought the insurance, so we're fine. Yeah, I think that much like heart
0: disease and teenage drivers, we're going to find out that there's a lot of things that have been boiling under the surface that are eventually going to cause um, significant changes in the way that we do the insurance that we buy. All right, um, Stephen, uh, news that broke this week. Dayterra CEO Guy Churchwood has announced his immediate resignation. He, in a statement released, cited the fact that the pandemic has really affected uh, the IT industry in general, And his health specifically um, in the article that we'll link in the show notes, it's been noted that uh, he's had some health issues over the last couple of years, some of them major, and uh, this news seems to be more about the fact that he needs to be out of the startup game more than anything related to the company. Um, Stephen, as uh, someone who's kind of kept an eye on things around the, the storage startup market, is this something that Dayterra customers should worry about? Or is this just a situation where we hope that uh, Mr. Churchwood uh, recovers
1: and can lead a long, healthy life from this point forward? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, you know, my sincere sympathies to, to Mr. Churchward, um, you know, um, it sounds like he's having a real rough go of it. And I think that we all need to be uh, respectful and supportive of that. And I hope that he does uh, recover from this. Um, I think that uh, the, the news here is not um, good. Uh, you know, we have uh, not only the, uh, you know, chairman and CEO of the company uh, out or executive chairman and CEO out Uh, We also have uh, the chief product officer uh, moving over to join Oracle in the cloud uh, business to run storage for them. Um, We have a lot of the co-founders have gone, uh, you know, Mark Fleischman, who I know, uh, left to become the CTO of VMware Cloud Platform um, in uh, 2018 before the pandemic. Um, And frankly, uh, you know, from my perspective, this is one of those things where a lot, of, um, a lot of companies in this space have found their, um, you know, found their fit, um, you know, and uh, some of them just haven't. And uh, frankly, um, th- this news, uh, you know, while, uh, you know, obviously health-related, um, combined with the fact, uh, you know, that uh, VNR has gone over to Oracle uh, it's not good news for Dayterra. Um Another piece of not good news is, frankly, that they haven't announced yet who it is. Uh, what's the name of the person that's in charge of the company now? Uh, they've said that it's uh, you know one of their lead investors, but uh, but who? Um, maybe they have by now, but um, you know, as of this blocks and files article from Chris Millar, uh, you know they hadn't, um, and and that's that that does bring cause for concern. So. I'll say, you know, I don't wanna uh, be piling on the poor guy. I hope that he's okay. Um, and also I wish the best for, you know, VNR and Mark Fleischman in their new roles, but um, yeah, this isn't good news for doTERRA. Yeah, I would I would say
0: that anytime anybody has a health issue, that's something you need to definitely look at, but it's the other things around that health issue, um, you know, things like a succession plan and uh, and things like that. If you're not planning to be replaced at some point, then you need
1: to analyze what your business plan is really all about. So in other news, Tom, um, Palo Alto Networks is apparently uh, shifting left, as the cool kids say. Uh, They are announcing that they have an intent to acquire uh, BridgeCrew, which is a developer-focused security startup. Uh, BridgeCrew is focused on infrastructure as code, uh, where the security constructs are integrated into the process as they are built instead of bolted on after the fact. Um, is this pick up a new area for Palo Alto? Uh, does this signal a shift for the company? or is this uh, really another case of a company filling out the gaps with a prudent acquisition?
0: Well, if you look at the acquisition history that Palo Alto has had over the last few months, <clears throat> like a lot of other companies, they've they've really been trying to to close those gaps. Um you know they've they've picked up a lot of really good companies. Uh, the ones that come to mind would be Apparetto and uh, Genix, But I believe that this is them trying to get into that infrastructure's code market a little bit more. I talked to a lot of companies last year at RSA around this time, right before we all got locked into our houses. And this whole idea of shifting security left, being more developer centric has been very prominent for folks because, I mean, you can only build so many firewalls, you can only build so many DLP devices before you have to start getting into the code, before you have to start getting into the auditing process. And I think that that's where Palo Alto wants to go. They want to position Prisma Access as a holistic security um capability, and more so than their on-premises devices, more so than some of their other offerings. I mean, they're really kind of betting on Prisma to be their stalking horse going forward. And being able to do code audits is just one aspect of that. And given that They picked a company that up until this point I really hadn't heard of, but I know of several companies that are doing something very similar. I think we're about to see a big spree of this infrastructure as code shift left developer centric security kind of either being integrated into other companies through acquisition or through talent uh, hires. Because I think that as we focus more on cloud applications and less on on-premises IT architecture, it's going to be more and more critical that we are building the security into the platform before anybody ever types out their first line of code
1: yeah and and honestly this is um, this is the direction that companies are headed. Um, you know I'm Honestly, I, I'm not at all surprised by this. I think this is a, a good acquisition for them. And, and, and I'm I'm happy to see that companies like Palo Alto are moving into the, the next generation, as it were, of uh, technology.
0: All right, Stephen. Um, hopefully, you have your head in the clouds or possibly even in low Earth orbit because that's where HPE is about to send itself another server. Um, their second spaceborne computer is currently headed to the International Space Station aboard a Northrop Grumman rocket. It's actually an Edgeline 4000 system that has been power hardened for use aboard everyone's favorite floating orbital platform. Uh, HPE has kind of branded it as an edge computing device, and they are super happy to be able to say that they have hardware on the International Space Station. But I was just curious, Stephen, where is the news story here? Because I know that they've been making a lot of hay about it. But what are we looking at? Is this like, you know, are are we going to start selling computers to the International Space Station?
1: Well, I, I, I would say um, this is not gonna have a meaningful impact on HPE's server revenue for the quarter. Um, let's just say that. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this was uh, more of a publicity stunt than anything, but, uh, but it's a good publicity stunt. So let's not, uh, you know, take anything out of them. Frankly, um, you know, HPE uh, sent a, a space computer um, up a couple of years ago, I think. Um, this is the Spaceborne 2. Um, and uh, you know, stuff needs computers. Uh, Space station needs computers. And um, frankly, this is a pretty cool computer. Uh, if you take a look at it, uh, I actually wasn't very familiar with the EdgeLine until I did some research for this story. So um, you know what I'm gonna say, HPE, mission accomplished. I looked into your EdgeLine, and I came out saying, hey, that's a pretty neat system. It's got these cool modules that plug in, um, kind of like Apple's uh, Mac Pro. You know, you've got a GPU module that plugs in, lets you have PCIe connectivity with a GPU. Um, you know, it's uh, got a lot of redundant hot swap stuff and, um, you know, they hardened it, uh, obviously, uh, launching in a rocket is, uh, difficult on equipment uh, they hardened it for that and they hardened it so that it would fit and then be useful in the space station. Uh, apparently they also changed the uh, power supply so that it's a native, you know, DC to DC connection instead of using an AC inverter, um, which uh, honestly, all this stuff is great. Um, it's cool. Um, I like it. Uh, I would love to see... Um, the cloud go to space. I think maybe that's the next step is that we send uh, some commodity servers into space and then we, uh, you know, basically uh, hyper-converge those guys, uh, put some, uh, you know, cloud uh, extension on there. Um, Could we see Microsoft Azure in space in the next um, half a year? Uh, Given HPE's partnership with Microsoft and given uh, the aggressive expansion of Azure and given the usefulness of Azure um, and Azure on the Edge. um, Yeah, I think that's a pretty likely scenario. And I think that's pretty cool. So uh, way to go, HP. Nice job. Yeah, I just hope that they made sure that they were shipping the rack screws and
0: uh, some of the power cables because if those don't show up, um, you can't really pop over to the fries in the parking orbit at the L2 Lagrange point to to grab a set. You're you're gonna have to
1: see if they can send them up on the next shuttle. And anyone who's installed a server knows how true that is. Oh my gosh, you know, oh, oh, you know, I need that, I need this, I need you know, this, this power cable doesn't reach, you know? Well, if you're in space, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a little tough. So uh, presumably uh, they've thought of all these situations. So Tom, I think it's time to look, uh, take a closer look at a few stories. Uh, as we do on the, on the rundown about halfway through, we like to turn our attention to some of the bigger stories of the week. And I think that it's time to really focus in on two big stories. Now, um, the first big story uh, that I'm going to put to you is related to, uh, well, let me see, let me get into my DeLorean here and go back a couple of years. It's related to Bloomberg's famous story of the big hack, where they claimed that uh, there was a secret spying chip the size of a grain of rice embedded in systems. Remember that? Well, guess what? This week, they doubled down on that story, uh, even though uh, basically everyone in the tech industry has spent the last couple of years saying it never happened, it was nonsense, you know, retract that story, Bloomberg. This, this week, they doubled down, and now they're reporting that Supermicro's supply chain um, is part of a larger campaign that went all the way back to 2014. Um, the reporting says uh, that other companies were also affected, and um, including Intel and the U.S. Department of Defense. But the reporting of this story looks more like a firmware update gone wrong than it impacted a significant number of companies. Um, we've seen a significant amount of reporting on this story, and it seems to morph every time we touch it. Um, is this just scaremongering? Is this a serious threat? Or is this Bloomberg trying to cover their butts for getting it so wrong last time? You know, I
0: when when you posted the story in the channel to look at it, I, uh, I immediately had to go make sure that I wasn't reliving October 2018 again, uh, because we didn't we deal with this when it came out, you know, at first, the, the fantastical idea of a grain of rice secret spy chip being embedded on boards was a little too crazy to believe. And, and I've talked to a lot of folks in the last couple of years that have basically kind of snickered under the under their breath and been like, yeah, yeah, that, that wasn't it. And then Bloomberg not only doubles down, but they split and buy the blackjack insurance because they really, really don't want this story to make them look bad. And then they start digging up other stuff. And I, I kind of think about it as if you've ever been in your house looking for something and you stumble across another thing that's kind of tangentially related, and you're like, hey, it must be a thing. No, it's not. Like you uncovered a whole bunch of things that look vaguely suspicious and now you're trying to knit all of these together to, to make your original story look like it was this big earth shattering revelation. I'm just gonna tell you that if you've uncovered something that happened four years before this story in a company the size of Intel, it's probably not related to the original story. It's it's just it just happenstance that Supermicro was the thread between the two of them. And it's a whole lot easier to hack firmware. It's a whole lot easier to attack the infrastructure without trying to slip into the supply chain. But on the other side, I mean, look at all of the supply chain security stories that we've gotten over the last eight or nine months. I mean, we had Dell who was shipping uh, boxes with special supply chain security codes on them. Uh, Cisco got very involved in supply chain security and and as far as I know is still offering it. Whether or not the story actually has merit, and by this point, I think that the, the enterprise security community has kind of debunked it. Um, they managed to get one thing done, which was make everybody super, super worried about who's opening boxes and sticking hardware on the boards. The problem is, is that they're asking all the wrong questions because if we rewind the clock all the way back to 2013, when Edward Snowden announced all of the big things that he found out at the NSA about all of those programs, why is it that we're suddenly worried about a foreign government that has the capability of putting hardware in our devices, but we don't really care when it's the NSA?
1: Yeah, I, I gotta say, um, when I saw this story, um, my first reaction, uh, to be honest, my first reaction was, okay, um, Bloomberg actually uncovered the, the real deal and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear what they have to say. Um, reading the story, it is nothing of the sort. Um, I will just say that um, this story is a mess. It is a meandering pile of anecdotes from people who were, Attached and we're not attached. Um, and the revelations, in quotes, of this story are so um, non-revelation to or non-revelatory to people in the tech industry. I just don't see um, that this is anything other than Bloomberg saying we didn't retract that story because look, look at all this other stuff. You know, um, you know, that wasn't a fire, but what about all those fires over there? Well, we know about those fires over there. Um, you know, I mean, we may not know 100% of the details, but neither do the Bloomberg reporters. Um, you know, so you look at this. Uh, Supermicro is in the headline, but this is not a story about Supermicro. Um, in no, in no position. Let me just make that clear. In no part of this story do they suggest that Supermicro did a thing. In fact, what they the, the, the closest that they get is basically saying, you know. Newsflash: The biggest supplier of uh, white box hardware had their uh, firmware update server um, hacked, and uh, some uh, suspicious firmware got out. That's it. That's basically the story. And um, you know, and it goes on to say, and this happened with other companies too. And then it goes on to say, and China and Chinese people or something. But th- th- the thing is, Supermicro is an American company founded by a Taiwanese immigrant. Um, I don't think that he's under the thumb of China. Um, I think that this is basically a case of a uh, you know advanced persistent threat attacking the supply chain, just like they always do, and specifically attacking the BIOS supply chain, attacking the firmware update supply chain, which is a smart, smart attack. And it sounds like it was really, really well pulled off. I mean, honestly, one of the only things in this story that really um, you know got my attention was when they said that they modified the firmware update server so that it would only attack certain very few systems in order to put uh, malicious firmware only on the systems that they wanted. Because one of the challenges with the uh, SolarWinds uh, hack apparently was that they infected just too many systems. They infected like everything. And then they had to go through and say, well, which of these do we actually want? And they probably missed some of the ones that they wanted and got some of the ones that they didn't want just because that was the nature of their hack. So basically that's my take on it. My take on it is that there's still nothing new here. And furthermore, my take is there's still no evidence of the big hack that they reported back then of having some kind of special purpose grain of rice sized chip embedded in motherboards. It didn't happen. And it doesn't need to happen because all they have to do is put in rogue malicious firmware on the chips that are on the board, and then they got the same result.
0: Yeah, I would agree that they're still trying to make hay of this super secret special hacking methodology when they didn't realize that all the attackers really have to do is break in the window instead of trying to defeat the electronic keypad. So we'll, uh, we'll of course, keep on top of this story because Lord knows Bloomberg isn't going to let it die anytime soon. right, now, Steven, you are Mr. Storage. You are the man. Who do you think the biggest enterprise storage vendor out there is? If you're thinking maybe Dell EMC or NetApp, you would actually be wrong. Turns out it's Amazon. Uh, Chris Malore is reporting that, according to an IT brand pulse study released, uh, market research says that AWS is at the top of the list by revenue. Dell is right behind, so they're close enough that you can argue one way or the other. Um, Survey does make some assumptions about infrastructure as a service revenue, both for Amazon and Microsoft, Uh, the number that keeps bandying about is about 20% of uh, revenues uh, either way. But the thing is, this is really big news for people who are building enterprise storage equipment because they're obviously hoping to sell it either to end users or to the cloud. Well, what does it mean when end users are buying their storage from the cloud? Are you going to be able to sell them a big, shiny new array, or are you going to have to come hat in hand to Amazon and say, hey, will you please buy our brand new big thing because our customers don't want to buy it from us anymore? Um, given the perspective that you've had on the enterprise storage space for quite a while and who you know the big players to be, how should we take this news? Because the other thing is, is that Microsoft is third. they are They're kind of a distant third. But they're still in the list. So two of the top three uh, largest storage vendors in the world happen to be cloud infrastructure services. Is this going to affect the way that they do business? And given that what you, we know that a lot of these companies are looking at the possibility of building their own equipment in the future, is this going to have an impact on the networking and security vendor space as well in the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the, the news, well, this isn't news necessarily, um, for one thing, there's no facts here really. This is based on assumptions. And the assumptions are that um, the uh, Amazon and uh, Microsoft Azure, uh, that storage revenue represents either 15 or 20% of their total cloud um, as a service revenue, um, which is a seemingly good assumption. Um, And if that's true and you just basically back it out uh, based on total revenue times 0.2 or 0.15, you end up with a number that's bigger than Dell. And um, that's not really a surprise to a lot of people in the industry, but I think that this is um, an affirmation to people in the industry. Essentially, we in the enterprise storage industry, and uh, it's the same with the server industry and likely uh, other spaces as well, We need to recognize the fact that these as a service platforms are becoming um, or have become the largest, uh, you know, vendor in the market um, already. And so, you know, while we don't know really how Amazon is breaking out these numbers, we don't really know, um, you know, what their actual revenue numbers are. And also, it's really hard to compare on an apples to apples basis Um, you know, Amazon's revenue from storage versus Dell EMC or NetApp or, you know, Huawei or whoever, uh, it's really hard to make that comparison. But um, I think that we can safely say um, that Amazon is the number one enterprise storage vendor and that Microsoft is probably the number three enterprise storage vendor. And I think that the other thing that that we need to think about here is, and this is uh, evident in this story, um, you know that we don't understand market share either. So if we assume that Dell Technologies has thirty or twenty-eight point nine percent market share in enterprise storage, um, that actually is wrong because um, you know that assumes that we're not including storage as a service from companies like Amazon and um, and Microsoft. And if we do, then Dell Technologies market share is likely to be more like. or maybe 15% of the total market, because the total market is a lot bigger than we thought it was. And think about that for a minute. So, um, you know, one of the the doom and gloom scenarios here has been that, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and Google and these other cloud providers are going to, you know, steal all the revenue away from the incumbent providers. But think about what I just said about market share. We don't actually know what the total pie is. So it's essentially, it's, it's um, you know, imagine you go into a, a pizza as a slice restaurant, and they sell you a, a slice, and you look at it, and you say, that's about an eighth of a pizza, and I spent two bucks on it, so a pizza must cost 16 bucks. Well, what if we estimated wrong? What if that was not an eighth of a pizza? What if that was a tenth or a twelfth of a pizza? In other words, we don't know what the size of the enterprise storage market is. And therefore we can't really justify it. And not only that, but we can't even say necessarily that Amazon and Microsoft are stealing revenue from the incumbent companies because the incumbent companies are already not number one or number three in the market. And so from my perspective, this is actually good news for Dell Technologies, NetApp, and the rest, because essentially what it's saying is that the Azure and Amazon market are built into the numbers already. Now that doesn't mean that that they're not gonna lose uh, revenue and, and lose market share, they are. But maybe the doom and gloom numbers are overstated because the pie is bigger than we ever thought it was And Amazon and Microsoft are able to eat up their slices of the pizza with the Dell slice not shrinking as much as we thought it did. So from my perspective, honestly, this is interesting. It validates something I already suspected about the market. And it also tells me something about the market, which is that we don't even understand the enterprise storage market.
0: And I think it's funny that basically we got ourselves into this mess overall with cloud computing by trying to apply old models to new consumption methods. And as we're unwinding those consumption methods with cloud, we're realizing there are better, easier, cheaper ways to do things. Well, now we have market research companies that are trying to apply old methods of measuring success in a world where that really doesn't matter anymore. And like you said, this this report is kind of riddled with assumptions about how much of the revenue is broken out by this versus that. And really, like you said, we we don't know, we're throwing darts at a board right now. It could be a whole lot different, but the fact is, is that even with our very strange grizzled old yardstick, we're still seeing the kinds of numbers that would make us very, curious about how people are using storage. And, and like you said, you know, if they're not counting certain types of storage that are, are bigger, that would impact the market, then that does a disservice to people who are out there trying to figure out, well, who's the best vendor to buy from? What do I need? Rather than asking questions about who you should be buying from, ask questions about what you really do need and who the best company to provide that to you is. Because, on-premises storage vendors are not going to go away just like on-premises networking and on-premises security because there are use cases that will never be able to get away from that but if your use case doesn't work well for that this gives you a good tool to go out and say okay well who has the best offering for this or who has the best offering for that but remember take these reports with a grain of salt read them carefully because you never know when you're gonna you know be fed a bill of goods because someone didn't know how to do their research properly. So, you know, here's hoping that the next report that comes out is a little bit more
1: um, researched. Well, what we really need is for the companies to actually report uh, numbers um, in these areas, and and perhaps they will. Um, You know, I mean, Andy Jassy is now in charge of uh, all of Amazon. Uh, He's got to be proud of what he's built with AWS, and um, perhaps uh, public companies like Microsoft, Google, and Amazon will, uh, decide that they need to disclose more granular numbers, uh, for their, you know, clouds, cloud offerings. I agree.
0: All right. Well, I should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown this week. Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, We appreciate your continued viewership, uh, your subscriptions to the channel, and a whole lot of other things. Uh, We are here every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time uh, with uh, the news stories that have been going on. Um, Stephen, if people want to catch up on some of the stuff that you've been working on, uh, where should they go to find that out? And what's uh, big on your plate this week?
1: Well, um, this week, uh, I've been mainly focusing on uh, news and podcasts like this. So if you go to utilizingai.com, I think it's uh, utilizing-ai, you can find uh, episodes of my weekly enterprise AI podcast. Um, You can also find uh, the podcast at uh, gestaltit.com, where we do a discussion of the uh, interesting uh, topics in enterprise tech from a on premise uh, or on-topic uh, perspective. And of course, I'm also actively working to plan our uh, next Cloud Field Day event. So coming in the beginning of March, we've got a Cloud Field Day event with uh, nine really excellent companies and 12 wonderful folks like you and me, Tom, who are gonna be uh, you know, learning about products and asking questions about those products. So go to techfieldday.com to learn more about that. And Tom, I think you've got some news here as well. I do actually, Uh, two things that I've got coming up. So
0: if you're a fan of my conversations video series, I've actually got a new episode publishing tomorrow. On Thursday, it'll be about private LTE. So if you've ever wanted to be your own cell phone provider, you can learn a little bit more about that. Um, Spoiler alert, it's not as easy as you might think. Uh, Also next week, uh, we have networking field day coming up. Uh, If you are excited about enterprise networking and you wanna talk to some of the leading companies that are doing great things in the space, including some companies that we've talked about here on the rundown over the last few months, you're definitely going to want to tune in just head over to uh click on the link for networking field day and you can uh, see my video talking about who's going to be presenting uh, you can check out the schedule you can see who the delegates are going to be it's going to be a great time next week we're going to have lots of fun learn lots of cool things uh, just like you'll be learning lots of cool things when you tune in for the next episode of the gestalt it rundown please make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application of choice Um, and uh, you don't want to miss any episodes as they come out. But for now, for Stephen Foskett, for Tom Hollingsworth, and the rest of Gestalt IT, we wish you a happy week. And remember that you definitely need to have a super sparkly day.